We are doing a series on Job. We've entitled it Questions Aloud. We started it last week, and I'm not quite sure how long it'll go. Uh, We'll be just kind of wading through it. As I told you last week, this has been a book that the Lord just kind of laid on my heart around this time last year and that I've just kind of been settling in myself for about a year. And I keep wondering when it's going to be time to give it to you, and now's the time. So last week we set the premise for the series, which is essentially that it's okay to have questions about God, for God, to God, and so on. God is not afraid of questions. We should not be afraid of questions. Questions and doubt are not the same thing. And we even talked about how you can distinguish the difference between questions and doubt last week. Um, So that's what we established last week. And again, if you weren't here last week, that's also available Uh, online. We add those. I think it's been added on already. Sometimes they're a week or two delay in getting them on there, but it'll be there eventually if it's not right now. So last week we kind of looked at an overview and set some of the premise and some of the... uh, We even talked specifically last week about um, some of the perspectives that we need to have and the way we need to take take the right perspective look at Job last week. Today we're actually going to look at the book itself and the actual verses since we've set our table last week. So if you've got your Bibles, go with me to the book of Job. In the Bibles we gave you, you'll find it on page 352. Uh, the book of Job, and um, as, as I mentioned last week, we'll spend most of our time in Job on the first couple chapters and on the last few chapters. We will delve into and we'll deal with the issues that are raised in that grand opera in the middle, Uh, but we're not going to go verse by verse through that grand opera in the middle because at about chapter 17, we'd all feel like we were living Job's life if we went through all of that piece by piece. It's a long, difficult, challenging thing. But we are going to spend the time today and look at chapter 1 and uh, see what happens uh, in that chapter. Uh, And and it's really more, today is really more Bible study than we often do on Sunday mornings. Uh, That's not an apology, it's just an explanation. Uh, So we'll actually be going through the whole thing uh, verse by verse this morning. Um, Before we do the verse by verse, though, uh, just a quick backup again. Last week, as I said, we we mentioned the importance of having the right perspective uh, when you read the book of Job. And a couple of things that apply particularly today that we saw last week are these. Uh, First of all, we need to remember that Job is the oldest book in the Bible. It was written before Genesis. It is one of the oldest pieces of literature in all of human history, but it was, it, it was written around the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is several hundred years before Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So it is unquestionably the oldest piece of literature in the Bible. So when we look at it today, a couple times it will matter to note that this, the book of Job is the first official <laughs> look at God and how he relates to mankind that was ever written. Uh, You know, before that people wrote things about it, but this is the first piece of the Bible that was written. So Genesis isn't where we begin to find out, uh, it wasn't the place where people began to find out about God in written form. Job was the first place. It's the first word spoken about the true relationship between God and mankind in all of Scripture. You could, you could rearrange the Bible and would not be doing disservice to it if you were to do it chronologically by the order it was written. It would start with Job and end with Revelation. And then everybody would pick up Job and that would be the first picture they'd have of God would be the book of Job. I'm kind of glad it isn't uh, for, for reasons that are obvious, but in some ways I almost wish it would be for reasons that we'll be looking at today with Job chapter 1. So keep that in mind. It's the oldest book ever written, so it's the first picture we see, the oldest biblical ideas that we have about God. The second thing that we need to see about perspective today is, as we mentioned last week, in our culture, we tend to see Job's before and after 
his wealth before and the restoration of his wealth after, we tend to see those two things as natural states of being with that nasty opera in the middle as something abnormal and wrong. And as we saw last week, Eastern cultures don't see it that way at all. Eastern cultures and, and, and see the big middle as the normal state of humankind and that the beginning and the ending was something that almost nobody in the world has ever experienced. Uh, but, of course, Job is about challenges, about difficulties. So if you're going through a difficult time right now, this may be particularly for you uh, today. It would be nice if all of life's problems could be solved in the way that we see sometimes in TV or in the movies or, as I saw just this past week, in the comic strip. I love this comic. Let's take a look at it here real quick. It's from a comic called uh, Pearls Before Swine. Let's go ahead and hit that next button here. First uh, caption says, Whoa, where are you going, rat? Next caption I'm running away from life and all my problems. Next one. Him running over the hills going, woo-hoo. Final one. I didn't know it was that easy. Wouldn't it be nice if running away from life and all of his problems was just that easy? I'm just, let's just get out of here. Sometimes you feel like that, don't you? The, the, the psychologists talk about having the fight or flight response. And there are times we just want to run away. How many of you know, though, that you can't just run away and that when you try to run away, you usually just make the problems worse, right? But it would be fun if that would be the way. All right, let's take a look at it. So th- th- today we're going to be looking at, uh, at the subject, is God enough? Is God enough? In order to do that, let's take a look at it through Job chapter 1. Job 1, beginning with verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. Let me pause right there. Um, some people... Many in recent years have looked at Job and say it's a parable. It didn't actually happen, but it's just uh, um, it's a made-up story, like you know, in the land of make-believe. The problem is it doesn't say in the land of make-believe. It doesn't even say like Jesus said when he would introduce a story and he'd say a certain man went to a certain place. And when you say certain man or certain place, you know you're telling a make-believe story, like in the land of make-believe. But when the Bible says the land's name and the man's name, and then later on, we'll see today, gives specific people like the Chaldeans who came in and did this. These are people who can be traced to history. These are places that can be found. So when the Bible gives you names, dates, places, and people by name, that means it's telling you this is history and not made up stuff. Because if it's made up and you put land of us Chaldean raiders later on, Sabian raiders later on. Well, you're pinning yourself to a place in time in history that can be checked. (laughs) And if it's checked and found not to be so, then, well, your story falls to pieces. So when you're doing make-believe, you don't put those things in that could make your story fall apart. Okay, Just just a quick kind of way of reading the Bible note. When those things are in there, it's the Bible telling you this happened in time and space and history. This was a real event. Okay, In the land of us, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and he had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take their turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. Let's pause right there, because that's the first, what, of Job. Up until then, rich man, rich kids, party a lot, dad 
checks in with God every once in a while to make sure the kids aren't sending in to offer a sacrifice in case they have. We kind of all get that, wanting to cover your kids and make sure everything's okay and everything's healthy. It doesn't say that the feasts they had were wrong. We've talked about it before. Feasting is a big part of the way people uh, celebrate God's goodness. So there's no reason to think the feasts were wrong events. You, don't, you typically don't invite your sisters over when you're going to be doing a feast that you're going to do stuff at that you don't want anybody to know about. So when it's brothers and sisters together, it's usually just a healthy family gathering. But Job would still want to make sure, make sure that they're staying righteous before the Lord. And then you've got this shift from the scene on earth to a scene in heaven. And the first scene, and again, remember, this is the first picture of God written in the Bible. So the first picture we've got of God written in the Bible is God, the angels come for a meeting, and Satan's with the rest of the angels. I told you last week, I don't have a real thorough explanation about this little verse. I don't know when, where, when or where specifically this would have happened. I don't know why Satan gets to go in with the angels to talk with God. I, I don't know where any of that comes from. I've heard some theological explanations here and there, but really anybody who tells you they know it is really kind of just guessing because we've got this verse and we don't have other verses that match it to back it up. And beyond that, there's some interesting speculation about where it comes from. Bottom line is, it did happen. And uh, so let's just go with that, okay? Verse 7, because that's all I've got. So you know me by now. If I don't know it, I'll tell you I don't know. So that's, here's one I don't know, but it did happen. Verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Let's pause right here. God asks, hey, Satan, where you been? That just sounds so weird, doesn't it? Satan answers, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then verse 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. I want to take a few minutes to go over this short little question and answer thing for two verses because it's really important how we look the perspective here's the perspective thing again if we look at this verse through the wrong lens through the wrong perspective we'll get the wrong idea about the entire book so let's adjust our perspective here first thing i want you to take note of here is that god takes note of us in the oldest book in the bible we're only eight verses in to the first book ever written in the bible and the first thing god brings up after asking Satan, so how you been? Again, weird. The first thing he then brings up is one of us. That's really unusual, particularly given the context in which Job was written, because Job was written in a time when all of the gods of everyone else on earth were multiple gods, they were idols. This was the era of Baal and Molech and so on. And if you've done any you know, high school history on even the later gods of the Greeks and Romans, you know that basically the idea that they had was that there were these groups of gods and they all argued and fought with each other. And when the gods fought, that's when it thundered. And when the gods were happy, that's when we got good things on earth. But basically the gods had this tussle up, up in the heavenlies and didn't really bother with us at all. But the first picture we see of the true God who is, the first picture, only eight verses into the first book ever written in the Bible, God's asking about and is concerned about one of us. That's revolutionary in their time. That a God would be concerned with the behavior of a human being just didn't enter their mind. And, and God himself introduces this and basically is telling us, I'm paying attention to you, and when you do well, I brag about you. Which really the first principle of today is we matter to God. We matter to God. The first picture we see of God in all of written scripture 
is him paying attention to us, telling us we matter to him. This past week, there was a column in the uh, register by Walter Williams, who's a columnist and a brilliant uh, uh, economist. And um, he, uh, he was talking about one of his professors years ago, and he says, I was trying to impress this professor with my knowledge of statistical errors. And he says this. He says, I told him that my wife assumes that everyone is her friend until they prove differently. While such an assumption maximizes the number of friends she'll have, it also maximizes her chances of being betrayed. This is the way a mathematician approaches relationships. Surprised he's got a wife to have a conversation with. Nevertheless, he does. Good for him. Uh, If that guy had a beautiful mind could do it, I guess this guy can too. All right, because he doesn't really look like Russell Crowe in real life, you know, anyway. Uh, my assumption is, my assumption is, everyone is my enemy until they prove they're a friend. That assumption minimizes my number of friends, but minimizes my chance of betrayal. So she's got an optimistic approach. I'll get more friends this way, but I'll be hurt more often. He's got the approach of I'll have less friends, but I'll be hurt less often. And he presents this to his statistical professor. And the professor dons a mischievous smile, according to him, and says, Williams, have you considered a third alternative? Namely, that people don't give a blank about you one way or another? He said, I felt a little bit insulted, but then I thought about it. I gave his question considerable thought and concluded he was right. The most reliable assumption in terms of conduct of one's life is to assume that generally people don't care about you one way or another. And then he goes on to talk about how wonderful an approach to life this is. Now, maybe economically, maybe statistically, maybe in some other political way that's a a, a healthy way to live, but I'm just reading this and kind of getting depressed and going, the best way to approach life is to realize that people just don't think about you one way or another. And then he says a major implication, and this is why it's positive to him, a major implication in this is that one's destiny for the most part is in his hands. In other words, how you make it in this world for the most part depends more on what you do as opposed to whether people like or dislike you. Whether your fellow man cares about you or not is irrelevant. Yeah, I just depressed everybody, didn't I? Well, don't blame me. It was Walter Williams. He depressed everybody. He depressed me when I read it to us. That's just awful. And then I read that, and then as I was reading this, I was in the middle of this study to look at Job and thought, isn't that interesting? Even today, a very brilliant mind is saying the best way to approach life is is to approach it with the idea that nobody really cares about you one way or another until they prove it one way or another. That, of course, is how people lived back then in in regard to the gods. They just lived their life with the idea the gods are separate from us. They don't care about us one way or another. They may may not be trying to hurt us. They may not be trying to help us. It's just whatever they do is so big that the good or bad spills over on us. And within eight verses, God says, no, you matter to me. And when you do well, I brag about you. You matter to God. It's a total revolution in the way people thought about the supernatural. One of the many revelations that God gave to the Jewish people is that he notices us and that we count. Today, unlike the other ancient pictures, uh, uh, unlike the other ancient gods and goddesses, we have a, a picture through Christ that is even fuller than the one that Job had that we understand God cares about us. Like this, this balances out with the next two principles and they go side by side. What happens in the spiritual world impacts the physical, and what happens in the physical world impacts the spiritual. That's established right here within eight verses in Job. And let me tell you why this matters. The pagan religions 
like um, the religions of many of the Eastern religions, for instance, that will have a, a, an amulet or a lucky charm or feng shui where you arrange your things in a certain way so that good things will come to you or, or the, 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 what are those uh, Indian things called? The spirit catchers, uh, dream catchers, right? All of that. All of that is pagan. All of that comes under the, the, the concept of pagan religion. And the pagan religions all have one thing in common, and it is the idea that they believe that the, through what we do in the physical world, we can impact the spiritual. But they don't believe it follows the other way. They believe that what I do can change the spiritual world, and I can basically manipulate the gods by doing these incantations, by saying these things, and when I do those things, the gods must respond. It's like pressing a button. If I press them in the right sequences, my computer doesn't have a choice to say, no, I'm not going to do that this time. Although mine seems to do that a lot. Anyway. Uh, but the idea is I press the right buttons and the gods must respond that I am in charge of the spiritual world and these are the items that get me there. That's a pagan approach to spirituality. The other approach to spirituality is the Buddhist approach, or again, many other Eastern religions, but Buddhism and its cousins basically say that the, the spiritual world is the other way around, that the spiritual world happens and it's going to happen that way no matter what I do and nothing I can do on earth will affect the spiritual world. So that's why they'll often use the the, the metaphor of a stream or of a river to describe the spiritual world. And you can jump into the river, but it's not going to change the direction of the river. It's not going to change the flow of the river. It's not going to change the amount of water in the river. You can choose to participate in it or not participate in it, but the river is going to keep on flowing. There's nothing you can do about it. And so the Buddhist approach to religion and to the spiritual world is the spiritual world happens independent of me, and I can jump in and be a part of it if I want, but I can't change it at all. Those are the two basic approaches of spirituality that existed on the earth before Job came along. And when we see in Job is, there's a give and take. It's not that the spiritual world exists over there and I can't do anything, and it's not that I can control it and manipulate it by my little things, but God and us interact. I can impact what happens in the spiritual world, and the spiritual world can impact what happens to me. There's an ebb and flow, there's a back and forth that happens. The ultimate picture, of course, of that is Jesus who came from the spiritual into the physical, and while in the physical, there was a back and forth that happened. He influenced heaven, and heaven influenced him. And as we live our lives as Christians, we need to understand either of those other approaches are either pagan or Buddhist, but they're, both of them are unbiblical. And eight verses into the first book ever written in the Bible, that concept is challenged and wiped away and says, God says we matter to him, and there's an interaction between the spiritual and the physical world. We also need to understand that it, this, this shows us that, that just saying the word spiritual doesn't equate mean good. I've talked about this before, but there's a growing consensus within our society among certain areas, particularly from the Buddhist standpoint, that believe that everything spiritual is good. That, uh, you, you've heard the phrase, right? oh, I like them, they're so spiritual. You haven't told me anything. <laughs> saying that person is so spiritual tells me zero about them. That's like saying, oh, they're so human. I kind of figured that, but give me positive negative after that, and then you tell me something about them. Spiritual means nothing, because there's positive and negative. We've got Satan and God here together. We have to discern the spirits. We need to understand there's a difference between the sides, and that we can have a role to play that will be impacted by and will impact either the positive or spiritual side, and here's this war that goes on. Anyway, continuing on with this, we, we read this exchange, still on this exchange. So we got this back and forth that happens. The second part about this exchange in verses 7 and 8 that I want to take a look at is this. The way we read this exchange is probably something like this. Again, the exchange is God says, hey, Satan, where you been? Satan says, been roaming to and forth, back and forth on the earth. 
God says, hey, have you noticed Job? He's doing pretty well. To us, that's a similar... The way we usually take it, at least it usually enters my mind, my perspective has been all along something like this. Um, a tourist comes in and we meet somebody and, hey, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm visiting from uh, Europe somewhere. Oh, yeah, really? How long have you been here? Oh, I've been here for a week or so. So you've been to Disneyland? Yeah, I've been to Disneyland. Oh, did you check out the new Finding Nemo submarine ride? Isn't that cool? Yeah, it's pretty cool. And that's kind of the feeling. Hey, where you been? Been here. How you like this? Okay. Does that sound similar like an earthly parallel kind of, right? That's not, exact, that's not at all what's happening here. And here's why. The Bible tells us very clearly that Satan... Here, let me back up. We assume when Satan says, I'm roaming back and forth on the earth, that it's like him saying, hey, I'm visiting Disneyland. I'm going to a place that I don't live and I'm hanging around there. And God is pointing out the sights. But that's not the case. The Bible tells us very clearly that the earth is Satan's home. Ephesians 2.2 calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. And that's a phrase that means he's in charge of the stuff on earth, especially if you look at it in the broader context of Ephesians 2. He's in charge of the stuff on earth. So when God says, hey, where you been, Satan? Satan's response isn't, hey, I'm visiting Disneyland. Satan's response is, oh, just hanging around my place. That's what that phrase means. Roaming to and forth among the earth means I've just been hanging around my place. I've been checking around on things, making sure that everything's still rotten, making sure that people are still cruel to each other. And so far, it's been going pretty good. Everybody's living a short, miserable life. Things couldn't be better. That's Satan's response. Been, been tending to my place, and things are going lousy just like I want them to be. And then God's question is completely different when you look at it in that context. God then comes along and goes, oh yeah, really? Things are lousy. Everybody hates each other. Everybody's cruel. Everybody's unfair. Everybody's nasty. Nobody's righteous. Uh, <clears throat> checked out Job? I got my guy hanging in your house. How do you like that? You seem like you've got everything in control. You don't have him in control. He's serving me. i got my guy in your place. And you can't get rid of him. You can't do anything about him because Job is going to stick with me even though he lives in your house. So this is not a casual question from God. Doesn't this change the context when we look at it in that way? All of a sudden, this is a totally different thing. So here's a partial explanation of why bad things happen to good people, which is one of the big questions of Job, right? Why do bad things happen to good people? Here's at least a partial answer to it. It's this. We live in enemy territory. That's one of the reasons why bad things happen to good people. This is, the the closest parallel parallel I've got to this is God's got to go back to World War II. And you've probably got modern things like that in Iraq and Afghanistan, but an easier, clearer one is World War II. And in World War II, the Germans attacked France. France becomes Nazi-occupied territory. But within France, there was a French resistance. People who did not wear the Nazi armbands, even for external sake, but, ju- but who actually resisted and who developed an underground. And the Allies would parachute things in or would send in spies to bring them supplies and to bring them information and to bring them help. And they would work inside France to undermine the Nazis but France was occupied by and in control of the Nazis. The Nazis controlled France. We live on the earth in occupied territory. Satan's in charge of earth just like the Nazis were in charge of France. And when we become Christians, we become a part of the resistance. Now, in Nazi-occupied France, it was dangerous to be a part of the French resistance, to stand up for righteousness, to stand up for goodness, to stand up for, for democracy, to stand against the evil of the Nazis. 
Righteousness was a dangerous occupation in occupied France during World War II. Righteousness is a dangerous occupation for Christians living on the earth today. It's easier and safer to be bad because of where we live. Being bad is easy. Being good can be dangerous. That doesn't make sense if we only see that God made the earth. That's true, he did. But guess what? He didn't make it the way it is today. He made it, gave it to us, we broke it. And now we live with the brokenness. And because of the brokenness, Satan gets to be in charge of broken stuff. And when we live in a place of brokenness and cruelty and meanness and hurt where Satan is in charge, goodness, it, the good people are the ones who are in trouble. They're, are they the ones that the bad stuff is going to be fired at? Does that help with the perspective a little bit? It, it does for me anyway. I hope it does for you. So why be good? Man, if that's the case, why bother being good? If, if good is dangerous and bad is easy, why be good? Well, it's the same reason that there were a handful of people who opposed the Nazis in France, because it's the right thing to do. Okay? Satan essentially tells God here, let's take a look at it in verses 9 and 10. Here's the response of, of, of Satan to this. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied, have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. So Satan basically says, well, of course he likes you. I know he's there. I know he's part of the resistance. But every time I try to go in, you've got him in this safe house and I can't get at him and that's not fair. (laughs) That's what that is. That's Satan going, that's not fair. You're not playing the game fair. Right? Basically, that's what Satan is telling, telling God. Job loves you and fears you because you give him stuff. That's what he's saying. It's like sending supplies into the resistance forces. They'll stay resistance as long as they keep getting the supplies, but if they're cut off, will they stay with the resistance or will they give in to the Nazis? That's what he's saying, okay? But take a look at verse 11. What, what, what's his answer? He says, but stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Cut off his supply, God, and he'll turn against you. He's not serving you because he's right and righteous and really wants to stand against me. He's just serving me because you give him all this cool stuff. Now, you know, in this, Satan makes the claim that God is Job's supplier, which is true. And Satan isn't allowed to tell the truth. Satan, well, he's allowed to. He just doesn't have it in his nature to tell the truth. All good things do come from God, and Satan says, you've given him all these good things. But that's not where his... Statement ends. You wait, let Satan talk long enough and eventually he has to turn it into a lie. It's just his nature. So what does he say? You've done all of this, but stretch out your hand against him and he will curse you to your face. There's the lie. There's the lie. Satan doesn't know he's telling a lie there necessarily. To him it may feel true, but it's, that's the lie of it. If you stopped helping him, he would turn against you. So God doesn't contradict the idea that every good thing we have comes from him. Every good thing we have does come from him. Then he says, strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Now that phrase, strike everything he has, could be interpreted as we usually do, and here's a perspective thing again. You could interpret that as, okay, take everything away or turn it bad. Or it could be interpreted from the original Hebrew as simply cut off his supply line, stop giving him good stuff anymore. Either of those things could apply. So again, the idea of he's receiving all this stuff from you, so if he stops receiving it from you, you stop being his lifeline, he'll curse you. And if you're living in enemy territory and the supply gets cut off, Bad stuff will happen automatically to you. You don't have the protection anymore. Okay? If that happened in our life, what would our response be? Here we are, and God has blessed us. And we have great things from his hand. If 
tomorrow all of that got cut off and God stopped giving you the stuff that comes along with him. Is God enough? Is God enough? Is knowing that he loves you enough if you don't have proof? Is knowing that his presence is here enough even if you don't feel it or see it for long stretches of time? Or do we only love him because of the cool stuff we get as a result of it? And there is great stuff that we get as a result of it. Living a life of honesty means you can put your head on your pillow at night relaxed. Nobody's coming at you. You've got no lies to cover up for. And the benefits begin there and they go on. Is God enough? Satan's claim that, God only, that Job only loves God because of the stuff, that claim is made against many of us, and for some of us it may even be true. Unfortunately, that's a really immature approach to God. 2 Corinthians 5.16 talks about this immature approach. It says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. In that passage in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is talking about growing from immaturity to maturity. And what he's implying in that verse, and again, it fleshes out if you look at it in context a little bit more, is when we first approach Christ, everybody approaches God with a gimme attitude. When you first came to the Lord, it was because your marriage was falling apart, you felt depressed, you felt lonely, you needed to reach out to somebody, you needed something from God. And God says, that's fine, come to me. If you have a need, come to me. I want you to ask me for things and I'll give them to you. So we all come to God at first immaturely with needs. And I need, I need, I want, will you give me please? Then he gives us those things and we have that satisfaction. But then as the relationship grows along, it ought to develop to a point where it's more mature where we don't approach Christ in that immature way anymore, and he's speaking to mature Christians here in 2 Corinthians, where he says we shouldn't approach Christ in a worldly way anymore, which is gimme. We should approach Christ in a more mature way. And if any of, us, if any of you have had a relationship with another human being that's grown, you've noticed the growth in that. It begins with, oh, I like her because she's cute, she's easy on the eyes. I like him because... He takes me to really fancy places instead of the dumps that my previous boyfriend took me to or whatever, right? We're getting something out of the relationship. But if the relationship is right and as it grows, you know, if you've been married for 20 years and it's still, yeah, I like my wife because she does this for me, she does that for me, rather than I just love her, something's wrong if it's, it's still only about the stuff. After a certain period of time, it ought to be, there's nothing you could do, you, there's nothing you could fail to give me that would make me stop loving you. Or, you know, take a look with your kids. Do you love your kids because of the stuff they give you? Are you kidding me? They haven't stopped bleeding me dry from the moment they were born. Oh, when am I going to get something back? Please. Do I, do I love them any less? No. It's not about what they give me. It's about who they are. That's the approach God has with us. God loves us for who we are, not for what we give him. One of the primary lessons of Job he just loves us. He's bragging about us. He loves us. And he wants the same in return. So the, the corollary truth to that is God wants us to love him for who he is, not what he gives us. That's a mature spiritual relationship that a Christian ought to have. God loves me just for me. At first when I approached him, I approached Christ in a worldly way. Gimme, gimme, gimme. But as I've grown in my faith, it shouldn't be gimme, gimme, gimme anymore. It ought to be thank you, God, that you are in my life. I love you for who you are, and that's enough. Would you stop loving God if the stuff stopped? That's the question that Job now has to face. Let's take a look at how he responds to it. Let's see what happens and how he responds. Verse 12, the Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your hands. 
but on the man himself do not lay a finger. What God is basically doing there is saying, okay, my supply line is cut off. My protection is no longer there. He now lives inside Nazi-occupied territory without the help of the allies. He's on his own. So at that point, bad stuff is just naturally going to happen. God doesn't have to turn and strike him. He just has to withdraw his hand of protection and boom, all the bad stuff is going to descend. And here's what happens. And Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabians attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Adam noticed this, the timing of this, while he was still speaking, Another messenger came in and said, the fire of God fell from the sky, that would be lightning, lightning came down, and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Let me pause right there, because they referred to lightning, that was just the phrase they used, was the fire of God. This does not mean that God sent the fire. The fire of God was simply the term they used for lightning. And lightning is a natural phenomenon, and, but even today we go, may God strike me, and we always think of fire, right? If, uh, of lightning. So it, has just, it doesn't mean God sent it, it just, that's the phrasing they used. Okay, I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. Let's pause at that devastation for a moment. A couple points to note in this. As weird as this sounds and as extreme as this sounds to us living where we are and sitting where we are today, this is not extreme treatment for the day in which Job lived. Attacks by enemy soldiers were common. That he hadn't been attacked yet was unusual. That he was now attacked was not unusual. That was typical. Why? God just simply removed the block and now what hap was happening to everybody else now was happening to Job. The next part, natural disasters, destroying animals and killing people was not unusual. It was typical in the day. What was unusual was that he had been spared from those up until this point. And then finally the death of his children. Children dying by natural disaster was common in their day, not unusual. Again, what was unusual was that his children had survived when so many of the children of other people had died at that point. We've got to really, again, look at it with a different perspective. What was extreme in Job's life was his prior wealth. Now he's being treated like everybody else. The difference, of course, for Job is that it happened so instantaneously while he was still speaking. I mean, that's a bit much, okay? But mostly the reason it happened to Job was this. He had it to lose. You notice this, Satan doesn't pick some, somebody who's already poor but serving God. Well, how do I get to them? They got nothing anyway. And there were poor people who were serving God at the time. Job wasn't the only one on the face of the earth serving the Lord. <laughs> Satan's point was, yeah, well, he's doing it especially well because of the money, because of the stuff. So God says, okay, take the stuff away see what the relationship is really all about. He had it to lose, which is a really important principle. In today's uh, Orange County Register, under the uh, commentary section, there's a, a, good, a big feature by Robert Samuelson and uh, some recent statistics which say, uh, beyond a certain point, presumably people's basic needs for food and shelter and so on, greater wealth does not generate more happiness. So they've now proven it statistically, money doesn't make you happy. 
I wouldn't mind some of that misery, but nevertheless. <laughs> so where does happiness come from? And again, they've tried to categorize this and make it specific. Quote, we ultimately get satisfaction from our relationships with family and friends, the love we give or receive, the meaning we find in work, service, religion, or hobbies. It's relationships. It's the stuff the scripture talks about. It's having relationships with each other. Happiness depends, he says, ultimately on individual character and on our relationships. It depends on loving and being loved and being righteous in today's newspaper. So, Job is as recent as today's newspaper. Okay, that's what it's all about. He had something to lose. God had blessed him. Only someone with all those blessings can lose that much. So Job strikes us as harsh, but the third world, as we talked about last week, sees Job as a comforting thing because they see that God is with him even through the difficulty. So what's his response? He loses all these hor things horribly, and then we take a look at chapter 1, verse 20. At this, these four reports... Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Let's pause right there. That's a natural response. Tearing your robe, shaving your head is a sign of mourning. I have just lost virtually everything that is precious to me. And so he, he goes into mourning from that. And that's appropriate. That's understandable. You would imagine that would happen almost without thinking. Automatically that would take place. Then what happens? Then he fell to the ground. That again makes sense. Shaves his head, tears the thing, falls to the ground. That all seems makes sense. And then he fell to the ground. How? In worship. Wow. I've really asked myself this week as I've looked at this, would that be my first response? Pause. I mean, think about it. Really think about it for a moment in your own life. Everything you've got, everything you've worked for, the people you love, all taken within moments, would your first response to be to cry out in pain and then to fall down in worship? I don't know if that would be my first response. It's never happened to me. Hopefully it never will. I hope, I pray, I think, I believe that it would be my first response, but I can't know for sure. Why was it his first response? Here's why. Here's what we'll conclude with and the band will come up. We worship because we need God, not because he needs us. We need him. He doesn't need us. When you have the right perspective of worship, it would be your automatic first response. When you know what worship is about, when you understand what worship brings to our, your heart in addition to what it does to serve God in that way, we would understand it. Then take a look at his worship. It's extraordinary. The first prayer ever written in the Bible is still one of the greatest prayers ever. What does he say? He fell to the ground in worship and said, verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Do those words sound familiar from earlier this morning? First song we sang, He gives and take, you give and take away, you give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. That's why I had the band sing that this morning, to lead into this. We sing it all the time, but what do we really think about? What he says is, I had nothing before. I'm not going to have anything at the end. It only makes sense that I don't have anything now. The only reason I had it to begin with, the only reason it could be taken away from me is because God gave it to me to begin with. It's his stuff, and it's his choice. And then we conclude in verse 21, 22 as the band comes up. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. Again, wow. 
or an amazing individual. So why do we serve God? Is it for the stuff? If it's for the stuff, let me just tell you, you've got an immature faith. Now, that may be appropriate if you're new in your faith. It's supposed to be immature. You haven't grown yet. That's, what, that's fine. It'll come. But if you've been sitting around this for a while and it's still about the stuff, let me tell you, you've got some growing up to do. No other relationship would survive that way. Maybe that's why some of your relationships haven't. <laughs> I don't know. Because when the stuff stops, you get whiny and fussy, and then they move on because they're going, they're not even going to, they don't care about me. They just want the stuff. Let's stand together. And I want us to conclude by asking this question Is God enough? Is God enough? And maybe you're in somewhat of a Job situation in your life. You look at Job's and go, oh man, I haven't all that happened to me. But boy, what you're in the middle of right now, the feelings are pretty close to it. It's, it's hard. You're in a tough spot. I want to ease the pressure of this morning a little bit by saying this. You can wish and pray and cry for your circumstance to change. You can beg God for relief and still be saying God is enough. Those two can still exist. So saying is God enough doesn't mean, okay, I'm fine with this misery. God doesn't ask us to wallow in misery in order to be good servants of his. That's not the point. In the middle of my crying out, because he tore his robes, and later on we'll see, he cried out, God, what's going on? I need relief. Help me, please. And yet in all of that, he did not sin in what he said. It was basically you give and take away, When you give it, I will turn it back to praise. But if you don't, I'll still love you. But I want to give you an opportunity. It's a little later than usual, but we still got time. This morning, if you're in one of those spots where you just need to spend some time saying, Lord, I I have a need. I need relief. I'm hurting right now. And God, I want for you to be enough. Please come and be enough. Be what I need right now because I need something fierce. As the band leads us in worship, I want you to come forward. And as you do, I'm going to walk along and I'm going to pray for each of you, whatever your situation may be. But you just by forward, by coming forward, say, God, I need relief. Help me. I want you and I need relief. Let's worship. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, you're enough. We know that in our heads. Help it to be real in our hearts and in our actions. Because, Lord, it whatever else we may feel that we need in addition to you, we can't imagine anything that we would need or want that doesn't come from you to begin with. You're the source. And may we desire the source more than we desire the stuff. Thank you, Lord. That you want to have a relationship with us. And it doesn't depend on how good we are, how great we are, how much we give. Your love is completely independent of all of that. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us completely. Help us to reflect some of that love back to you as best we can. We thank you for it, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless everybody. Have a great day. Hi there. If my voice sounds familiar because you've just been listening to a message from me, my name's Carl Vaders. If the voice you're hearing now is different from the voice you just heard, well, either way, the message you just heard was preached at Cornerstone Christian Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. And we're just tagging this on to the end of, in case you got a copy of a copy of a copy of something, and I'm not sure where it came from. 
Cornerstone Christian Fellowship is located at 17575 Euclid Street in Fountain Valley, California. You can get a hold of us through the phone number 714-962-5412 or check us out on the web at cornerstonefv. That's cornerstonefv for Fountain Valley dot com.